Or you can have a seat as you're sitting down. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse 12. This week, Blake and I were looking for some good illustrations of um, false advertising. Found some good uh, examples for you this morning. First is this bonsai slip, uh, slide and splash whale pool as advertised uh, and then as delivered. Oh, that's pretty good. But this, one, this one's even better. Okay, my first Insta-set pool, as advertised. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's a reality. And then uh, a Hyatt Hotel, you want to stay near the Capitol, uh, that's advertised. And then that's actual. <laughs> it's a little bit more of a walk, right? And then this is a really fun one. Lydia E. Pinkham Vegetable Compound. It, is, uh, it was advertised to take away all womanly ales. Okay. Well, if you look at the label closely, there's actually no medicine in it, but it is 20% alcohol. <laughs> so at least right for a little while, it works pretty good. Now, this one was actually, it was kind of sad. It was a little tragic. Um, William, Dr. William Frederick Koch uh, put, this, uh, put a product out called Koch's Cure-All. In 1919, he started marketing this. And uh, according to the marketing strategy, this could literally cure everything, like tuberculosis, cancer, allergies, whatever. You just took a small injection of this stuff. And uh, what they discovered uh, upon investigation was is actually just distilled water. So there were a lot of people who stopped taking their real medicine so they could take Dr. Koch's cure-all. And the effects were devastating. False advertising, it can be really funny or it can be tragic in its consequences. This morning, essentially, we're going to talk about false advertising. Sin is falsely advertised. It promises us something that it can't deliver. It promises us freedom, and what it delivers is uh, enslavement. What Paul's going to do in Romans 6, the latter half of this chapter, is he's going to use this analogy of slavery and freedom to show us how life uh, actually works. I want you to read with me, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law? but under grace? Uh, Paul begins this section with another question. It's very similar to the question in 6.1, but a little bit distinct. Uh, In 6.1 that we looked at last week, the question is basically this. Shall we remain under the mastery or in the realm of sin? The motivation being this, in order to gain more of God's grace. And Paul answers, may it never be. May it never be. For a couple of reasons. One is you've got all of the grace of God in Christ that you can have. God gave you all of Christ on the cross. You can't get more grace by sinning. Christ is the culmination, the pinnacle of God's gracious provision for the world. So you can't get more grace. And in fact, you can't remain in the realm of sin positionally because you actually are in the realm of Christ. You have been moved out of the realm of sin and death and Adam into the realm of Jesus Christ. It's just a fact. Whether you feel that or not, Paul begins by saying, you need to know that this is true. You have been baptized into Christ when you believed. That is, you have been identified fully with Jesus Christ. 
And the second question in 6.15 is this, shall we commit sin? Not should we remain under the mastery of sin generally, but shall we indulge in sin or commit acts of sin? Motivation being because we're not under law. That is, uh, the list of rules and regulations encoded in the Mosaic law doesn't govern our relationship with God. So does that mean that we're free to break that law or to commit acts of sin? The motivation We're not under law, but under sin. Or simply put, why not sin freely? If we're free from the law, why not go ahead and sin and sin freely? Paul's answer, again, may it never be. He cannot say it in stronger terms in the Greek language. He says, absolutely not. May it never be. Now, what's interesting is uh, this idea of not being under the law, he's going to hold off on that until chapter 7. He won't answer what that means. So, Uh, Students, next semester, when you come back in January, we'll go right back into Romans 7. We'll pick up this part of the question. What does it mean to not be under the law? What he does address is this question specifically, why not sin freely? Now, to put it in context, we have just moved from justification into sanctification. Paul wraps up the the theology of justification in chapter 5, where he talks about being transferred from from the realm of Adam into the realm of Christ. Justification being God declares you to be in right relationship with him. You're not in Adam any longer. You're in Christ because you believed. You believed that God punished your sin in Christ. In the moment that you believed, God said, you are in right relationship with me. It's a once and for all act or declaration of God based on the faithful work of Christ. You are in right relationship. That's justification. Sanctification is ongoing. It's a lifetime. It's progressive. God is not declaring us righteous. That's justification. He's making us righteous. That is, he's making us experientially in, in our character, in our, in our speech, in all of our actions, more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to argue that the basis of this is the grace of God, not law. That is, it's the unconditional acceptance and love of God and the power that flows through Christ not obedience or conformity to the law of Moses. He's also going to argue that it is the spirit, not the flesh. That is, it's going to be through dependence on the power of God's spirit, not what we as human beings, unaided by the spirit, can accomplish on our own. Now, interestingly, that's also the basis of justification. Justification is the work of God on our behalf that we cooperate with when we believe. Sanctification is also the work of God on our behalf, and we cooperate when we obey God and submit to the Spirit. And Paul's going to map that out through 6, 7, and 8. So let's look a little more closely now at his explanation. Why not sin freely? Read with me chapter 6 and verse 16. Paul says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Sin is falsely advertised. When we are tempted... The world and the devil and our flesh says to us, you don't have a choice. You don't have a choice. There's something nagging inside of us that says, 
no, this is just the way that I was made. Men, you have to give in to certain temptations because that's the way you were made. Women, you have to give in to certain temptations. That's the way you were made. You don't have a choice. And what Paul is arguing first here is that sin is not necessary. And he's reiterating the point that he made in the first section. We are not under any necessary obligation to obey sin any longer because we're no longer in the realm of sin. We have been freed from that. The chains have, in fact, been broken. Notice what he says here, verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Or in other words, you believed. And when you believed, it meant you were no longer a slave of sin. Verse 18, and having been freed from sin, past tense, passive voice, this is what God did for you. He removed you from the realm of sin. He freed you from slavery. You don't belong there any longer. So what Paul is arguing is essentially this. Uh, Don't give in to sin because you don't have to. Okay? Don't give in to sin because you don't have to. Uh, We summarized uh, Paul's arguments in his own words in Colossians 1.13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Don't obey sin because you don't have to. Uh, Years ago, Dwight Moody told a story, a true story. It happened in the Ohio State prison system. Apparently, the the, uh, board of commissioners convinced the governor to give five pardons to criminals. And Moody doesn't tell on what basis. Was it prison overcrowding? He doesn't say. But according to the story, the governor agreed five pardons. He said, here are the conditions. Uh, I want it to be based upon prisoner behavior. The prisoners that behave the best over a six-month period will get these pardons, but you can't tell anyone. I don't want them just behaving well because they know a pardon is coming. So this will be secret. It will be private between the board, the commission board and uh, the, the governor. Governor agreed. Commission agreed. Five criminals. Didn't matter what crime they committed, no matter how long they'd been in, the five with the best behavior would get a pardon. Well, at the end of the six-month period, the president of the commission came to the prison and he gathered all of the prisoners together and he announced, I have in my hand here five pardons. There was silence. Complete silence. He said, five of you today will walk out free men. So he read the first name, Reuben Johnson. Come up and receive your pardon. You're a free man. Nobody moved. Okay, nobody stood up. He said, he goes, Reuben Johnson, come up and receive your pardon. You're a free man. Again, no one moved. The chaplain of the prison stepped forward and Reuben was sitting on the front row. He goes, Reuben, he's talking to you. Reuben looked at him a minute and turned around trying to find where Reuben Johnson was. He just, he couldn't believe having been a prisoner for decades. That was all that he could remember of his experience was that of a prisoner. Three times the chaplain said, Reuben, he's talking to you. Reuben. He's talking to you. You are a free man. Finally, Reuben got up. He came forward. He took his pardon. He opened it up, read it, sat at his seat. And Moody, as he relates the story, said he just buried his head in his hands and he wept. Commissioners handed out the other four pardons. And at the end of the time, one of the guards called and he said, all right, all prisoners, line up. We're going back to your cells. You know where Reuben went? He got back in line. And the chaplain walked over to him and he said, no, Reuben, you are not a prisoner any longer. That line is not your line. Okay? You are a free man. And that's what Paul is saying. 
for many of us, we have lived under the oppression of sin, the slavery of sin so long, it's hard for us to contemplate that we are actually free. So Paul says, let me begin by reminding you or educating you for the first time. No, this is true. You have been freed from the necessary obligation to obey sin. That's Paul's first point. Second, he says, sin is no longer appropriate for us. We're no longer slaves of sin, but we are slaves of God. Read with me in verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and having been enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and in the end, eternal life. Paul says you're not a slave of sin any longer, but you are still a slave. You're a slave of God. God didn't set you free so that you could obey every impulse of your mind and body. He set you free so that you would be his slave because there's only true freedom in enslavement to God. It's one of those paradoxes of life. Uh, You know, we're stuck with it. As human beings, we will be enslaved to something because we are created beings or in theological terms, we're contingent beings. We are dependent upon something else. And it is natural and normal for us to be dependent upon God because we're made in his image. But in sin, if we don't depend upon God and submit to God and enslave ourselves to God, we will enslave ourselves to something else. We will be slaves of something. Remember Bob Dylan's song, for you who are older, you're going to have to serve somebody. I don't know if Dylan understood the theology of this, but he was right on. You're going to have to serve somebody. He said, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Why? Because you are human. Will it be God and righteousness and life and peace and wholeness that he brings, or will it be sin and Satan and death and unrighteousness and destruction? But you will serve one of two masters. Okay? And what Paul is doing in this section is he's moving us from status, from position, okay, from what has been declared true of us, to our actual experience. Read with me in verse 16 again. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? Or as Jesus said in in John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. What he's talking about is our experience. And so Paul's point is, don't sin because it's not appropriate for you to sin any longer because you're a slave of Christ. And it's not necessary any longer. Uh, Douglas Moo wrote a great commentary on the book of Romans. My wife got a kick out of his name, but still a good commentary, all right? He said this, Paul's concept of freedom is not that of autonomous self-direction, but of deliverance from those enslaving powers that would prevent the human being from becoming what God intended. And what is it that God intended? Since we're made in his image, that we would fully bear his image. And we only, in a sense, completely self-actualize when we become slaves of God, because that's how he made us. So, in other words, True freedom is the desire and the ability to do and become what is righteous, good, and beneficial. That is freedom. And Paul says, therefore, sin isn't necessary, nor is sin appropriate. Now, you remember uh, the analogy or the illustration that I used last week of Denver Moore. 
Uh, it was from the book, Same Kind of Different as Me. Denver Moore was a, an African-American man born and raised in Louisiana, and he had lived uh, his entire life, child through adulthood, as a sharecropper. And it dawned on him one day that he didn't have to live as a sharecropper anymore, as a, as a slave to the owner of the land, because the law of the land was that he was free. So one day, he just decided, I'm done with this, walked off the land, got on a train, and left. Now, could he have gotten on a train and come back? Yes. But it would have been inappropriate, and it would have been unnecessary for him to go back to living like a slave, because he wasn't a slave any longer. He didn't have to get in the prisoner line. He could step out of the prisoner line because of who he was and what Christ had done. Now, Paul's third point is this. Sin is also a destructive master. Hey, don't submit to sin because it destroys you. Verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. And Paul's just saying there, uh, I'm using a human illustration. Uh, and it's not a perfect illustration, but it makes the point, he says. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That is, you just had one master, and that was sin, and you didn't have a choice. There weren't two masters, two voices you could listen to, so you had no obligation to righteousness, just to sin. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which now you are ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says sin leads to destruction. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, sin has bad consequences. Uh, I think that freshmen in college illustrate this point very well. Okay? Uh, so hang with me. You, you've probably known a freshman like this before. Maybe you were a freshman like this. Maybe you are a freshman like this. Maybe you're here at church last Sunday of the semester trying to get things right and fix things, okay, before finals come next week. I don't know. But you've known these kind of freshmen, right? They get to school and they're free. They're free. All constraints are thrown away, right? The first time they've ever been free from their parents. Nobody's watching them. They can do whatever they want. They can live however they want. And they do. Right? You guys who've lived in the dorm, you know, you know these guys, they, they, they stay up to 4 or 5 a.m. Playing video games every night. They eat you know, pepperoni rolls and macaroni and cheese and beer for every meal. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right? As a result of staying up all night, they miss the 8 o'clock. They miss the 3 p.m. They miss all their classes. <laughs> right? Miss assignments. Skip things. Flunk classes. Get sick. They show up at the health center every two weeks and get a test for mono. Why am I so tired? Right? Uh, I had a friend, one of my first friends when I started at A&M, freshman year, met him at fish camp. Guy was brilliant. 1600 SAT. Brilliant. Uh, presidential scholarship. Full ride. The dude's set. First semester. Lived like an idiot. Flunked out in December. Went home. He spent two years trying to get his grades back up so he could get back into AM. He got back into AM and then he paid the rest of the way. Parents didn't pay. Deny. We're not going to pay again. He paid for the rest of his college. You know what he experienced? 
shame. Shame. See what Paul says in verse 21. Therefore, what benefit or what fruit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? You put a certain seed in the ground, it's going to yield a certain fruit. It is inevitable. It is a law of nature the way God has made the world. And if you sow with a view to unrighteousness, your life will become unrighteous. You sow foolish decisions and choices, your life will not yield good fruit. That's what my friend experienced. And you know, in America, we don't like this concept of shame. We don't want to feel shame. We don't want others to feel shame. We try to protect people from shame. But when you make stupid decisions, you should feel shame. That's, that's the right emotion for foolish and self-destructive decisions. And so Paul says, first, sin brings shame. Second, sin brings death. Read with me in verse 16 again. Do you not know? Are you not aware or, or don't you remember? But when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. Either of sin resulting in, or literally sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. Now what does Paul mean by death here? Remember, death fundamentally means a separation. Death is separation. For the non-believer who, who spends an entire life rejecting God, There is an eternal separation. It's called eternal death or the second death. They will forever be separated from God. No relationship with God for eternity. But the believer can also experience death. Death of relationships. When we sin against others, those relationships are broken. They're alienated. There is a death. There's separation. When we disobey God, There's a separation of our enjoyment with him, even as believers. We don't enjoy that. We feel shame and guilt. We don't experience the power of God's spirit in our lives. God brings discipline into our lives. And sometimes, according to some illustrations in 1 Corinthians 5 and 11, I think the book of Hebrews as well, sometimes that discipline even ends in death. God says, no, you're bringing shame on yourself and shame on my name and the name of my son Jesus. I'm going to remove you from the earth. It's physical death. And that can even be the experience of the believer. Notice what he says again in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to imagine for a moment that what you have in life is it's like two roads, two pathways, and each of these roads ends in a cul-de-sac. At the end of one cul-de-sac is death. It's an eternal separation from God. But this whole roadway, this whole pathway is a pathway of death. He says uh, the wages of sin is death. Uh, Wages are daily or weekly or monthly provisions. In other words, a life of rejecting God and living contrary to God and his principles and his righteousness doesn't just reap death at the end. It reaps death all along the pathway. Wages. Hourly, maybe, daily, monthly, weekly, there's death all along the way. On the other road, uh, you have at the end of the cul-de-sac eternal life. And Paul says, that is an absolutely free gift. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are given eternal life. Believers in Christ, that's your destiny. 
So live on that pathway. Don't live on this other pathway because that's not where you belong and it's not necessary and it's not appropriate. And if you stay there, life will be destructive for you too. Even though your end is eternal life. Third, he says there is deepening enslavement to sin. Verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. Paul is saying is, sin breeds more sin. Sin feeds upon itself. Because the way God has designed the human creature, we are habit-forming. Constructive, healthy habits or destructive habits. We are habit-forming creatures. It's just part of our nature. And the habits of sin bring death. And the habits of sin bring more sin. Sin is a self-perpetuating thing. In other words, what he's saying here is there is no such thing as a safe sin. There is no such thing as a safe sin. Because sin reinforces itself. Why is sin tempting? Because it's falsely advertised. It it does promise pleasure. And is there a level of pleasure in sin? Well, sure. It wouldn't be tempting otherwise. When Eve looked at that fruit, she didn't see a, a rotten tomato hanging there that was smelly and shriveled up. She saw something that was really delightful to the eyes. And when she took it, I can almost guarantee that that first bite tasted really sweet before it got really bitter. Proverbs said, stolen water is sweet, but not forever. And so what the the brain does, what the mind does, is it continually reinforces the pleasure that we get for sin, even if it's just for a moment, and it suppresses the consequences of sin. That is what Satan did with Eve, and that is what Satan does with us constantly. He suppresses the consequences and reinforces the pleasure. When we get to chapter 8, we're going to talk about the physiology and the psychology of sin and habits and addiction. But you need to know that as a human being, as a person, we are naturally habit-forming. So last week, my son and I were driving around, and he said to me, Daddy, why do people do cocaine? (laughs) And... um, It's out of the blue. I wasn't sure where that question came from. I said, that's a really good question. Why indeed do people do cocaine? Well, I had a friend of mine come up in between services who's a former cocaine addict. And he said, you know, what you said was right on. He said, you know, what cocaine does is about five minutes you get euphoria. He said, and it is euphoric. He said, but just about for five minutes. And then he said, you may be messed up for 30 hours. But you need a little more to get that same euphoria. And you want it. And you enjoy that euphoria so much that your brain says, well, the consequences won't be that bad or the consequences weren't that bad. And pretty soon all of your relationships are broken and you're bankrupt and your life is a mess. And your body's breaking down. But you just want to get back to that euphoria. Okay? That is how temptation and sin functions in our lives And it destroys us. Paul says there are two pathways. And you will, as a Christian, you will enslave yourself to God and obedience to him and righteousness or to sin, slavery, and death. But the beauty is, and we'll really get into this in chapter 8, 
Habits can be formed negatively. Habits can also be formed constructively. And Paul says God is a good master. Okay? He's a master that brings life to us. He brings righteousness, sanctification, and eternal life. Read with me again, second half of verse 19. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Three times, Paul says you can be a slave of obedience, which is the same as being a slave to righteousness, which is the same as being a slave to God. And what God does in your life is he not just declares you righteous by faith in Christ, but he is busy through the power of his spirit making you righteous. That is conforming your life to God who knows how your life works best. And he produces sanctification, that is uh, holiness being set apart for God, but also practically wholeness. Okay? Life fits together and works well. And eternal life. The end of that road is eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 47, Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Or as he says in 1 John, he who has the Son has the life. The moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, eternal life is guaranteed to you. That is, you will live forever. But for John in his theology and also for Paul, it's not just something that's out there. It's something that you have as a present possession. You can begin to experience God in your life now. Uh, Literally, eternal life is uh, life of the age. That is, the age to come where God sets all things right through Christ. You can now even begin to experience all of that that God has for you. Jesus said it like this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. Might have it abundantly. The thief is Satan. He's the destroyer. What does he want to do? He wants to wreck your life. He's destructive. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. You say to yourself, well, I don't want to be a slave of God. I'm just going to serve myself. Then you're serving him. You're serving Satan, and he'll destroy your life. But Jesus came, why? So that you would have life, real life, and have it abundantly. Now, how does this work? Uh, I'm going to give you just uh, one application word this morning. Chapter 6, let's read in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Why? Because you don't have to. It's not appropriate. You belong to God. And if you obey sin, it'll destroy you. So don't do it. It says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Five times in this paragraph, Paul uses this word, present. Present, 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 present. Five times he uses it. Five times, present. It's a sacrificial word. In the Old Testament, when people brought their offerings, they were presenting. It was an act of service and worship. Paul uses the same word, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice 
acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Make yourself available in service, sacrifice, worship to God. Present. Okay, present. And notice what he says here first. He says, do not go on presenting or stop presenting or never make yourself available to sin. You will worship something. You will serve something. You will be a slave to something. Stop presenting the members of your body, that is uh, your physical being, including your mind, that is your members. Because all that you do in relationship to others and the world and God, you do through your body. So don't make yourself, don't present yourself to sin and destruction. Stop it. Let me illustrate this for you um, with one of the weirdest verses in the Bible, I think. Okay? This is really weird. It's from 2 Peter chapter 2. It says this. And if he, that is God, if God rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Now, remember the story of Lot? I don't, it, I don't, I didn't get lots of head nods, so I'm going to remind you of the story. When I think of Lot, I know I don't think, but so one word characterizes Lot. I don't think righteous. Three times here. Peter says, he's righteous. What in the world? Peter's got some messed up theology, or we don't understand, right? Okay, maybe it's us, so let's back up a bit. Righteous Lot. Here's his story. In case you haven't read back through Genesis in a while, you should. Um, Don't let your kids read Genesis, right? That means some seriously foul, racy stuff in Genesis. Lot is Abraham's nephew. He goes with Abraham into the promised land, all the land that's been promised to Abraham. They've got too much stuff, too many cattle and or, you know, sheep and goats and oxen. They've got too much stuff, so they need to split. Abraham, who's heir of all things, takes his nephew graciously and says, you pick, where do you want to go? You go north, I'll go south. You go east, I'll go west. Pick where you want to go. Well, Lot is extremely disrespectful to his uncle. Really, this is very bad character in, in the ancient Near East. He says, you know what I'll do? I'll take the best stuff. I'm going to go down to that valley where it's really fertile, I'll take the best. Even though all that had been promised to Abraham. So Lot leaves and he goes down to Sodom and what he finds there is great fertile land, but he also finds immorality. He, he sets up shop in Sodom and it's an evil, immoral, wicked place. So much so that God sees what's going on down there and he says, you know what, I'm going I'm to destroy that. And because Abraham is my friend and Abraham walks with me, I'm going to tell Abraham ahead of time, Abraham, I'm going to destroy that but I'll rescue your nephew and his family. So God sends two angels down there. The angels go into town and they tell Lot, Lot, pack up everything you got. Pack up your wife and your two daughters. daughters. I understand they're betrothed. Get their, their, your son, sons-in-law and they're, they're not married yet, but go get them, get everything because God is going to destroy this place. When we walk out of here, we're going to rain down fire and brimstone. It's going to be destroyed. Well, Lot's hesitant, whatever. You know, they're, they're wrestling, struggling with this issue. His sons-in-law, they don't believe him. Well, that evening... The sun goes down and the men from the city come to Lot's door. Bang, bang, bang. We know some travelers came. Send them out so we can have our way with them. Sexual immorality. And what does righteous Lot do? He says, no, don't take my visitors. Take my daughters. Righteous Lot. Really? Okay. That's a different definition. Okay. The angels know better. They pull Lot in, they rescue Lot, his daughters, his wife. They walk out of the city. They march him out. Lot's wife turns back. 
She's lived in immorality in that immoral city so long. She loves that place. She gets turned to pillar of salt. Lot's got just his two daughters. They hide out in a cave. His daughters say to themselves, you know, we're never going to get husbands stuck out here in this cave. Let's get our dad drunk. And we'll sleep with him and we'll get pregnant by him. Incest. Because he had raised his children in an immoral environment. That's the world they knew. Righteous Lot. What in the world is Peter talking about? Lot believed. Lot believed in the Lord. And his faith was credited as righteousness. Did he do good works? None that are recorded. Okay. We wouldn't look at him and go, experientially, Lot, you're really righteous. No, we would say, no, you're, what a waste of a life. What a waste of a life. But declared righteous, declared to be in right relationship with God because he had believed in the Lord and God credited it to him as righteous. So Peter says, that's righteous Lot. But think of his life experience. He lived enslaved. While living among them, he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day. He was positionally right with God, but experientially he lived enslaved to sin. Because why? He presented himself day after day after day to unrighteousness. And guess what? It yielded more unrighteousness in his life. And he experienced slavery to sin, even though he was in right relationship with God. That's not how we normally think. But believers in Jesus Christ, all of us at some point have experienced sin's besetting power. It's enslavement. It might be drugs or alcohol, or it might be gossip. It wasn't cocaine. We didn't get a little hit off the cocaine, but a little hit off of gossip or lying or buying things or promoting ourselves and pride. And those things became addictive and we felt the oppression of sin. And Paul says, you don't have to. You can break free. Why? Why? Because Christ has broken those chains. You do not have to say yes. You have been given a new master, and that is God, and he's good. So now, Paul says, present, and he shifts verb tenses. He says, present, and present, and present yourselves to God as slaves of obedience to God, because the fruit will be righteousness. In other words, make yourselves continually available to God to transform you. Put yourself at God's disposal in service worship. It's not just about what you run from, getting out of Sodom, that's necessary. But it is about what you are running toward, what you become preoccupied with. And as we hit chapter 8, we'll talk about this whole process. How do we become preoccupied with God? But that's Paul's point. The pathway to righteousness practically is becoming preoccupied, absorbed with God. Because the way we're put together as humans is we cannot be preoccupied fully with more than one thing. And so when we run from this, flee from this, and become preoccupied with God, he can transform us. You know what preoccupation is. Ladies, have you ever seen your husbands watching one of their favorite athletic events, a team they really love, and the game is tight and intense, and you walk through the room and say something, they hear nothing. Right? I mean, the house could burn down as long as cable is not affected. They're locked in. They might go, did you burn something in the kitchen? I mean, you know, it's just, that's preoccupation. The heart and the mind and the body are locked in to God. So students especially, here's your application point. It's the last shot I have at you before you leave for the holidays. If right now you say to yourself, I'm I'm enslaved. Sins just got me by the throat. 
get help. As you go home, if you're not plugged into a a church, find a really good, solid local church. Go sit down with the pastor and say, point me to somebody who's older and wiser, an older man or an older woman who's walked with God because I need help walking with God. Be honest and be transparent. The first way that you get rid of the darkness in your life is shine the light on it, okay? And ask for help. If it's an addiction to drugs or to alcohol or sex or pornography, something like that, Find a Celebrate Recovery group in your town. We have one here for when you get back so that you can have accountability and encouragement because the atmosphere in which you live is necessary. Paul says, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Create an atmosphere in which righteousness is possible in your life. If you're addicted to alcohol, don't get a job-tending bar, right? Change that atmosphere so that you can present. Stop presenting yourself to unrighteousness, but present yourself to God. Students, make a plan for when you leave here. For a lot of you, this may be the first experience that you've had of Christian fellowship, and you step back into your homes, and you're going to get back into the same patterns that you had with your parents and your old friends. We need to break that so that you can present yourself to God. If that is just online, you set up a group of friends, and man, we're going to get online. You know, twice a, twice a week, we're going to get online and talk and encourage and, and exhort one another. Or if you've got Christian friends, man, find that fellowship, create that atmosphere. And whether you say to yourself, I'm addicted or not addicted, remind yourself during this t- period of time, there is no such thing as safe sin. Sin leads to more sin. And then more sin and more sin. And for each and every one of us, what I want us to do, kind of remind you, read Romans 6 through 8 over the holidays. Meditate upon it. Present it before your mind. Offer yourself daily. I want you to think about one thought over the Christmas break, and that is this. How can I continuously present myself to God? How can I continuously, through this holiday season, become preoccupied with God? As we enter this season, our our world doesn't force us to be preoccupied with Christ. It forces us to be, be preoccupied with Santa and with stuff. And with with all kinds of distractions. So believers in Christ, what can you do during this holiday to become preoccupied with Jesus Christ? Why? Because he is the only good master. And he brings righteousness and sanctification and life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus today. Because he is the one who has rescued us from the penalty and the power of sin. Thank you, Father, that you are a good master. And we submit ourselves again to you as our master because you have purchased us with Christ. I thank you, Father, that you've broken the necessary obligation that we had to sin and to its slavery through the work of Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us and instruct us as we meditate upon your word through the holidays how we can present ourselves to you as an offering, a holy sacrifice to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Students, have a great break. We'll see you in a few weeks.